Louis Zamperini was a bombardier in the U.S. Army Air Forces in the Second World War. And in May of 1943, he was on a plane that, because of mechanical problems, crashed into the Pacific Ocean. After miraculously surviving 47 days at sea, he reached land in the Marshall Islands but was captured by the Japanese where he was held captive and tortured until the end of the war. It was a hopeless situation. After 13 months there, he had almost lost all hope. But 75 years ago this month, he was under guard pushing a cart over a bridge in Tokyo, and he saw graffiti on a building that captured his attention. And the graffiti said, B. Niju Ku. Well, he knew what the letter B was. It was the English letter B. And he knew what Niju meant. Japanese was the word for 20. And he knew what Ku meant. Nine. What he did not know was what B-29 meant. Well, just a few days later, on November the 1st of 1944, a U.S. plane left Saipan. And the size of this plane was staggering. Not only that, it could fly at high altitudes, and it was a very fast plane. It could fly at 358 miles per hour. B-29s had already been used in Japan for about four and a half months, and already the Japanese were very terrified by these B-29s, and hence the graffiti. And at noon on that day, November the 1st, the sirens went off in the prison yard, and several POWs went out into the courtyard, and someone shouted, an American plane! And the guards were struck with fear, and the POWs could hear the guards saying, B, Nijuku. A POW who had been recently captured uh, clarified what that was. He said that was the new American bomber, and a cheer rang out in the prison yard. And the POW started crying out, B-29, B-29. And it flew over... Tokyo for over an hour, and everyone knew what this meant. It meant that the American military knew where these POWs were, and that they were willing and able to do something about it. So even though this B-29 actually incensed the prison guards, and there was one in particular that gave Louis Zamperini problems, they called him the bird, it made Louis's life very much more difficult in the near future. His suffering was greater because of the presence of this B-29. Zamperini and the POWs persevered over the next nine months in light of their new hope. And that hope was that the Americans knew where they were and were planning to do something. And I think that is a helpful an analogy of the life of faith. Of course, we as believers are no longer enslaved, and yet we suffer the effects of living 
in a broken world, in a world that is under the dominion of the evil one. And the, bear, and the Bible is very honest about the struggles that we face in this world. In fact, Romans 8.22 describes this world as a groaning world. We live in a groaning world. And if I could submit to you that texts like 1 Samuel 30, that we're looking at this morning, drives home that God is aware of our situation. And he is willing and able to do something about it. In fact, we know greater than the original audience that he has and will do something about it through his Christ, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at this point in redemptive history, David is the Christ. Just remember that word Christ means anointed one. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. David is the anointed one at this epoch in history. And he has been living in the land of the Philistines, unfortunately, because of his own compromise. But this life with the Philistines was coming to a head. Why? Because these Philistines had come together and they were going to fight the Israelites. In fact, what we see take place in chapter 30 takes place simultaneously with the events that are taking place in chapter 31. We'll see that next week. And just as David, we saw in chapter 29, was trapped between this rock and a hard place, God moved providentially, and these commanders of the Philistine army said, no, we don't want David, we don't want his men to be a part of our fight against the Israelites because they will turn on us. And so David and his men had to leave the camp. And so that's where we are in chapter 30. Chapter 30 picks up at the end of their 60-mile march back to their base of operations, which is Ziklag. Now at this point, a new crisis hits. And what we learn in this crisis is that a crisis is just, in the Bible, an opportunity for the anointed one to show his worth to show his capacities. And what we see in the verse 20 verses is the Messiah's victory, his conquest, and his deliverance. Now look with me in verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. Of course, that's David's base of operations. David does not know that at this point. And taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. Now, none of the captives were killed, but we don't need to mistake this for mercy. The Malachites are not known for mercy. They were kept alive, most likely, to serve as bargaining chips with David, or they might sell these people as slaves. That's the way it worked in the brutal ancient Near East. Now notice in verse 3, when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. 
Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Verse 5, it's interesting, specifically mentions David's wives that they were taken. But notice in verse 3, their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. So why would he, the writer spell this out again in verse 5? Of course, David's wives were taken. All the wives were taken. Verse 3, so why spell this out? Well, the stress on David's family, the emphasis on David's family, once again reminds us of the war on the bride, the war on the seed that begins in Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent seduced the first bride and the first king, Adam, and we know that he was created with regal capacities because he was to rule and take dominion, that's kingly language, he's the image of God, that's kingly language, but the first king failed to guard the first bride. And the issue here is the future of the woman's seed. The woman must be protected, must be guarded, because the woman bears the seed of redemption. And so that's, I believe, the reason you have this emphasis in chapter five, or verse 5 on David's brides. But at the ground level, now when we study a text, you have to look at it from the air, redemptive history, but you also have to look at it from the ground level. And at the ground level, this was a Job-like situation. Can't even imagine what David and his men would have been going through when they see that their base of operations has been burned down and all of their family, their entire family, all of their possessions have been taken. It's Job multiplied times 600. Now notice in verse 6. David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. So as these men grieve over this grievous situation, they became bitter in spirit. Trials expose who we are. Trials reveal what we really believe. And here it's not good. The men were talking of stoning David. Now, some suffering that we experience in this life is not our fault. It's just life in a groaning world. It's life in a broken world. David had suffered at the hands of Saul. That wasn't his fault. He, in fact, he had suffered because of righteousness sake. And let's be fair. These men who want to stone David, they're sinning against David. Sometimes people sin against you, and that's very painful. But in the main, David has brought all of this on himself. Why? Because he had run to the land of the Philistines, trusting in earthly things, 
earthly powers, having preached propaganda to his heart rather than the promises of God. So there are a lot of suffering that we could avoid just by trusting God. He's brought this on himself. And the strain on David would have been devastating. We don't need to read this with too much of a familiarity. We need to realize and recognize the the suffering of this future king. Not only the loss of his family, loss of his possessions, but the loss of his men. Men who had who had followed him with great loyalty, now have turned their back on him. There's a mutiny here. How do you respond when suffering comes? Well, suffering tends to kidnap our thoughts, doesn't it? Suffering tends to to steal our meditations and, and take domination of our meditations. And in so doing, they have a devastating effect, the sufferings that we experience on our emotions and how we respond to our trials. And this is why fighting for control of what you are meditating upon is so important for the sufferer. It's vital. And in contrast to Saul when he suffered, who ended up going to a witch, what does David do? Notice in the second part of verse 6, I love this verse. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Isn't this an exemplary text? All hell has broken loose. All hell had broken loose on Saul. Again, trials reveal who we are and what we truly believe. Saul goes horizontal. David goes vertical. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. But understand, as exemplary as this verse is, it's only applicable for the weak. Only for the weak. In recent events, David was too strong. He was too self-sufficient. And God wasn't on his lips. But now... David, by God's grace, painful grace, but grace, has been convinced of his delusion of strength. And though that may feel like a vulnerable place, to be brought to that delusion of strength, to that place of weakness, it's the only safe place. It's the only safe place. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 46 would later write, God is my refuge and strength. When we recognize God is our sole source of strength, we run to him for refuge. It's the only safe place. It's also the only place of joy. Isaiah 12, verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. It's the only place of joy where you have been brought to the place stripped of anything else you can trust in, recognizing God is your strength. It's also the blessed place. Psalm 84, verse 5, Blessed are those whose strength is in you. It's the place of blessing. And at this weak and vulnerable place, this weak and vulnerable time, 
David could not presently say, my kingdom. There was no kingdom for David. He could not presently say, my family. He had lost his family. At this point in time, he could not presently say, my possessions. He's lost his possessions. He couldn't say, my future, my career. The only thing he could say was, my Lord, my God. And that's where strengthening begins. By coming to terms with our delusion of strength. But what does this look like? Well, very similar language has been used already in chapter 23. Where it says that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. So this language has already been used. Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. And we saw then that the way he did that was by preaching the promises of the kingdom to David. You're going to rule. You're going to reign. God is in control. His sovereignty and his reign is going to be expressed through your reign. And we saw that that is the seed of the gospel. So we recognize then that the way we strengthen each other's hand in God is by preaching the gospel and the implication of the gospel to those who need strengthening. Because the implications of the gospel is glorious. Christ has emerged victorious over sin, death, and the devil. And he is now ruling and reigning and will consummate that rule and reign in time when he returns. But sometimes there's no friend there. Jonathan had been there earlier to strengthen David's hand. But at this point in time, chapter 31 tells us that Jonathan is about to die in battle. His best friend. He has no friend at this point. His 600 men have turned on him at this moment. But for the believer, because of the provision of God's priestly ministry to us, God is still gloriously sufficient and present. And we see that here in verse 7. And David said to Abiathar the priest. Isn't that beautiful? Saul didn't kill all the priests. The son of Ahimelech. Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord... Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? God answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Now we have not heard David ask for the ephod since chapter 23. The name of God has not been on David's lips since chapter 26. He's been living in the land of compromise. No psalms were written during that time. The great songwriter has developed writer's block. That's what sin, that's what compromise, that's what Messiah replacements will do, even for the believer. But it's clear at this point, David has recovered spiritually. He's been brought to the end of himself. God has been disciplining David. His discipline can be very painful when we stray, but it's gracious discipline. It's purposeful discipline. And David has been brought back 
where he recognizes he has one strength, one hope, and that is the Lord is God. He's recovered spiritually, and so he seeks direction from Abiathar the priest. Now, for the Christian, we don't have an Abiathar. We don't have a priest, nor an ephod. We have something better. We have someone better. We have the great high priest. Hebrews chapter 4. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so at any moment that we struggle, we have a priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. He is ever present for us to mediate between us and God. Now, in answer to David's question, the Lord told David to pursue. That's a command. Do you realize that all of God's commands also come with promises? So note the command here. He is to pursue, and notice the promise, you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. All of God's commands come with promises. That's why his commands are not burdensome. Now notice in verse 9, so David set out and the 600 men who were with him, so he has regained their trust. What does a leader do when those he's leading are bucking his leadership? He keeps leading. And that's what we see here. The 600 men who were with him, who just a few moments ago were wanting to stone him. That's a leader. And they came to the brook Bessar where those who were left stayed behind. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bessar. So a renewed David sets out and ultimately only 400 men will go with him. They stay the course. 200 were too fatigued. So what does David do with these 200? He says, you can stay. And as we'll learn later in the passage, he has a, a purpose for them. Not everybody has the same calling. And he tells them to stay with the baggage, in charge of the gear. But even in obeying God, and obeying God's word here to pursue, there's no way to know at this point where the Amalekites are. He's in the desert. One of the drawbacks in the desert, they didn't have GPS systems back then. I can't even remember what it's like not to have a GPS system. They didn't have that. And there weren't many people in the desert. So there's no way to know where the Amalekites are. But what does David do? He just simply obeys. He obeys what God has presently told him to do. And that is to pursue. And I think there are at least three reasons why obedience is always the best course of action, even if you can't make sense of that obedience. First of all, obedience to God magnifies His worth. That's the most important reason we obey. It glorifies Him. Now, why does it glorify Him? Because you're saying in your finite fallen condition, I may not understand where you're going, I may not understand what you're doing, but I trust you because you're good and you're wise. And so obedience magnifies God's worth. Secondly, the reason obedience is always the best course of action, as David is pursuing without information, is that just like a fish was constituted to flourish in the water, 
the image of God has been constituted to flourish under the rule of God, under the authority of God, under the commands of God. That's where we flourish. We are his image bearers, and his image bearers flourish under his authority. Let me give you a third reason. Obedience is always the best course of action. When we obey God, he resources it. He makes provision for your obedience, even when you can't make sense of that. Notice in verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country, and they brought him to David. They found an Egyptian. Don't overlook that. A few years ago, some of you may remember this, there were ads placed on Louisville buses. And the ads said this, the Louisville bus transportation system is ubiquitous. Y'all remember that? You know what they meant by that? In other words, Louisville buses are everywhere. Well, we know that's not the case. But in 1 Samuel, the providence of God is everywhere. The providence of God is ubiquitous. They found an Egyptian. Such a simple statement, but profound providence. There was no way of knowing where the Amalekites were. They were a nomadic people. They just traveled and traveled. David simply obeyed God. We will pursue. We do not have a GPS system. We do not have any contacts. We do not have any leads. They did not leave a business card when they ransacked Ziklag. We will simply obey you. And they found an Egyptian. We need to develop our eyes for providence so that our faith, our love, our gratitude can be nurtured. Let me just give you just one brief example of recent providence. Last night, we married Tesla off to Carter. That sounded bad, didn't it? <laughs> we just learned, Becky and I came to realize this morning on the same weekend where three years ago she was converted gloriously to the Lord Jesus Christ. Three years ago, she was converted to her ultimate bridegroom. And for the last three years, God has been preparing her for her earthly bridegroom. Three years to the weekend. You can't make that up. That's the providence of God. We need to develop our eyes for providence so that our faith, our hope, our love, our contentment, our joy can be nurtured. They found an Egyptian. Look at the notice, the second part of verse 11. And they gave him bread, and he ate. I want you to note the grace here. Generally, when I'm devastated by something, my heart is too restricted and selfish to minister to others when I'm going through something really difficult. David's world has been rocked. And for all he knows, this Egyptian has nothing to benefit him. But notice what they're doing. They gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs 
and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, this is beautiful, his spirit revived. His spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. We're going to come back to this, this motif of three days uh, in, a, in a later passage. We just don't have time to address it. it I do believe it is significant. But David's act toward this Egyptian, who at surface level had no, could offer David no benefit, did produce benefits for all. For one, it revived the Egyptian. But to David's benefit, the Egyptian provided information that would allow David to see God's promise fulfilled that he had made to him in verse 8. Notice in verse 13. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell, six, uh, fell sick three days ago. That's what the world will do when the world can no longer benefit from you. They leave you behind. Why would we serve the world? It's loveless. Why would we look to our hope from the world? We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master. And I will take you down to this band. God's provision. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Isn't that beautiful? Now, I want you to notice that word uh, for dancing here. The Amalekites were eating, drinking, and dancing. That is connected to a Hebrew word for festival. You would, you would spell it in English, H-A-G, festival. And that indicates that the Amalekites are in the midst of a worship service. They are worshiping their gods, their faults, their pagan gods for the conquest. So David's victory here was also the Lord's victory over the gods of the Amalekites. Just as his victory with Goliath was the Lord's victory over the five territorial gods of the Philistines. And by going after these 
raiders, David shows himself to be the faithful Adam, or at least a faithful Adam, who rescues the bride, who rescues the seed, and crushes the serpent's head. The verbs reveal his prowess. I love it. Let's go back. Verse 17. Let's just take them together and pray that God will strengthen your faith. David struck them down. Verse 17. Verse 18. David recovered all. David rescued. And then verse 18. David brought back all. Verse 20. David also captured all the flocks and the herds. David comprehensively recovered, rescued all that was lost. Nothing was missing. Nothing. This is the anointed king. And that brings us to perhaps the most important part of this passage. The Messiah's grace as he distributes the gifts, the bounty of what he has taken. Look at me in verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bessel. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. This language of worthless fellows has been a theme throughout 1 Samuel. We first saw it with Eli's sons. We saw it with Nabal. And we have seen that to be a worthless person is to show contempt for the things of God. And those wicked, those worthless men, I think here, are the poster child for a theology of works. Their theology reflects itself in that, that they were very impressed with their own contribution, with their own exploits and accomplishments. And, and this makes sense. It does. Given that a person does not look his eyes to the hill and ask, where does his help come from? Psalm 121. If a person does not look his eyes to the hills and ask from where does his help come from, this makes sense. They were very impressed with their own accomplishments. But David, on the other hand, had many times looked his eyes to the hills. Notice in verse 23. David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. This is remarkable leadership, showing compassion and mercy to those who do not deserve it. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? 
For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. He's saying these two these 200 men have served a purpose. They have stayed. They have watched the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. We tend to forget. We have amnesia. Noetic effects of sin. Short memories. All right? We tend to forget that every cell in our body, every neuron in our brain is dependent on God. We often forget that every success we may have achieved has depended on forces beyond our control. Every talent, every ability, every opportunity we have is a gift from God. David recognized that this plunder, the spoils of war, was not something they had simply earned by their own exploits. That it was a gift from God. This is 1 Corinthians 4, 7, where Paul asks, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And that's why we give sacrificially to the Lord. We are confessing, this isn't ours, it's yours. You just entrusted to us. We're just stewards of what you've entrusted to us. To hold on to it, to hoard it, is to boast as if it's something that you earned in and of yourself. David knew better. And, and David's policy was based on two foundational premises. All plunder gained in battle is ultimately a gift from the Lord. And secondly, successful military operations, or any successful operation for that matter, requires the performance of many different tasks. Paul, I think, picks that up in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There are none within a body and an operation that are insignificant. And David recognized that. Such grace, such wisdom. And grace not just in words only, but in works, in his acts, and in his deeds. Notice verse 26. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here, I love this is a present for you from the spoils of the enemies of the Lord. That last line there captures the importance of the victory in one sentence. Here is a present for you. They didn't earn it. It's the grace of the anointed one. Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. This implies that he was using this gift as an announcement of his messianic status. As would be expected of the Lord's anointed, David had fought the Lord's enemies. And as would be expected of the Lord's anointed, he's now bringing blessing to his people. 
Notice in verse 27. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jeter, in Aurora, in Sifmoth, in Eshtimoah, in Rachel, in the cities of the Jerob Millites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Aphek, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. David sent gifts to 14 cities and territories and all the places he had roamed. What blessing, what grace, what mercy from the king, from the anointed one. Of course, we recognize that this text isn't all about blessing. It reminds us of the kind of loss that we can bring on ourselves when we go rogue. When we trust in the Philistines rather than our God in a given trial or temptation. There was great loss that happened as a result of that. Many of our struggles are unnecessary. Some struggles are a result of living in a fallen world. But many of the trials are a result of our own sin. And we could avoid that just by trusting, preaching the promises to our heart rather than propaganda. But the text also drives home that like David, when we lay hold of the Lord and we strengthen ourselves in God in renewed repentance and faith, the Lord can restore the years the locusts have taken away. Why? Because our Messiah has emerged victoriously. And that's why those two points are not the central point of this, ta- uh, this text. Not the main point of this text. Remember the Old Testament. And we have to think about reading our scriptures from the air, the redemptive historical level, but also on the ground. I just gave you two ground level applications. But in my view, that's not the main point. The main point is that God is preparing us in the Old Testament for the seed of the woman who will crush the seed of the serpent. That's the hope of the world. And God, David's regal, kingly activity functions like that B-29 flying over Tokyo, signaling to the people of God that hope is on the way. Hope is on the way. David's name is used 25 times in this chapter. 25 times you read the name David. The whole chapter sings the song of the revived David who is everywhere in this chapter doing everything. This victory then is a preview. This victory is a promise, a pledge of the blessing that God is going to bring to his people through his king, his Messiah. When the Lord makes the greater Messiah's enemies a footstool for his feet. In other words, to borrow an old song, the Lord will rule, this I know, for the Amalekites' defeat tells me so. And like David's comprehensive victory 
And we saw that it was comprehensive. He, he recovered everything. His comprehensive victory over the Amalekites, setting his family and the captives free. So Jesus has disarmed and defeated the principalities and powers. And he has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred his people into the kingdom of the sun. And in this battle, we have done far less than those 200 men who were guarding the baggage. Finally, as David took from his own share and gave gifts to his friends in need, so Jesus, having set the captives free, gives gifts to his bride, the church. The greatest gift being, understand, nothing material, though he does give material blessing, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Jesus is a king who, like David, doesn't take. Remember in 1 Samuel 28, the kings of the nations take and take and never give. Saul was a king who took and took, who never gave. But Jesus, like David, is a king who gives and doesn't take. Matthew 20, verse 28. Son of man came to serve, uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And how hopeful is it at the Last Supper? And how hopeful is it at the Lord's Supper that Jesus didn't say give so that he could take? Jesus gave himself a ransom so that he could say, take and eat. Take and eat. That is God's good gift to us in his Messiah. Let's pray. Father, mercy, thank you that we have a king who gives every good gift, every perfect gift. Lord, our trouble comes when we fail to believe that. And we believe that you need supplementing because you don't give us what we need. Make us a people who trust that you give us every good gift through the mediation of our greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we come to this table, we recognize that. These elements symbolize that reality. You give us everything we need for sustenance, for salvation, for hope in our greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. Before we partake of the elements, for those of you that are visiting with us, not members at Fisherville, we would ask you to participate with us at the table to fellowship with us over the elements upon a couple of conditions. First of all, you're born again. Uh, you have experienced the new birth, repented of your sins, trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation. You're living under his lordship. And you are a member in good standing of a like-minded church that believes that gospel. Baptized believer in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts for the table.